Welcome to Watershed Chats, presented by the Water People Podcast in collaboration with Patagonia. Watershed moments are traditionally understood as a division or distinction between two phases. They can be turning points that define our shared history. Here, we sit down with experts and those having a go at building and dreaming new ways into fruition for a healthy and habitable future on planet Ocean. Our podcast comes to you from the coastal land and waters of both the Bunjalung and Kabi Kabi nations. We'd like to acknowledge these traditional custodians and pay respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. We'd also like to extend that respect to all First Nations people this podcast ripples out toward. Emmy Koch is a surfer and the 2018 National Geographic Adventurer of the Year. More recently, she was awarded a prestigious Fulbright Fellowship for her ongoing work that explores social and ecological well-being in artisanal fishing villages. Emmy's nonprofit, Beyond the Surface International, hosts a suite of projects that use surfing as a tool for social justice, youth empowerment, and sustainable community development around the world. As we're recording amidst social distancing, we caught up with Emmy over the internet, so please excuse any dropouts or glitchy moments and enjoy hearing from the founder of Beyond the Surface International. Emmy, you recently spent nine months living in the back of a water sports center called Manta near Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. How and why did you end up here? <laughs> it's actually a really funny story because... So the WSL Pure had organized these worldwide paddle outs for um, Plastic Free Seas. This was probably exactly a year ago. And I had been awarded this Fulbright, you know, National Geographic Fellowship. And, you know, it, it was it's one thing to write a proposal about like, I'm going to do this, this and this. And then actually like people are like, yes, we believe in you. And here's the money and like go forth and do that. And I was like, okay. I got to go figure out <laughs> where, where am I going to start? You know, where am I going to live? Like, what's the first community that I'm going to talk to? And um, so when we, when the WSL was organizing these paddle outs, I had organized one here in um, San Diego with actually um, my graduate school the, um, cohort. Like the, so there was, you know, a group of 30 of us and we had paddled out and, but I, they were going around um, the world. So I went onto a map and uh, from the WSL had, and they had a group that went out in Vietnam. And I thought like, oh, that's fantastic. Maybe I can team up with them because, uh, you know, I would like to surf <laughs> when I'm over in Vietnam. Um, and it just so happens that the group that organized it was Manta. And they are incredible. It was a very small, you know, water sports center started by this amazing woman, uh, Julia Shaw, who herself is like an ecologist, but um, you know, moved to Vietnam because the Vietnamese government wanted to be part of the, the Olympics for sailing. And uh, they had basically asked her, she was already working in Vietnam in a nonprofit for, you know, environmental justice, but they basically knew she was a sailor and so asked if she could train a team to participate. And so she ended up starting Manta as like a training center for Vietnamese sailors who would want to go to the Olympics. Um, and then because she's, you know, ecologist at heart, she started to hire local fishermen to be sailing instructors. And she was also had this amazing idea to talk about the sustainable development goals while doing that. So these fishermen are not only certified sailing instructors for tourists if they want to come, but they also teach about 
sustainable development goals, climate action, and how, you know, the power of wind energy um, as opposed to using fossil fuels. And it also takes the pressure off of them in terms of, you know, providing for their family solely based on fishing, where um, they have a skill set as well in terms of engaging with tourists and they're able to earn an income that way. So I had contacted Julia saying like, oh, I had organized a paddle out in California. You know, I see that you organized one as well for the WSL in Vietnam. Like I'm coming over. Um, Could I, you know, start off uh, working with you? Um, And I just never left. (laughs) It's like once I got there, you know, we became she I think of her as like my fairy godmother. Like she's just such a wonderful woman and um, doing such incredible things with the community. So, um, yeah, I lived in a back room. And it's funny because that water sports center, it used to be a brothel. So like all the rooms are kind of situated. So I was living in one of the rooms and I I often thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) So. When you were awarded your Fulbright, did you already know how you were going to implement your ideas into the world? Or did traveling to Vietnam reshape what you thought you were going to do there? Absolutely, traveling to Vietnam reshaped what I thought. And usually when I write a proposal, because my experience before has been writing like grants. And so, and I guess the trick in terms of writing grants is is you you do have to speak the language of that foundation or you know whoever is providing that funding and you kind of construct this project but I think with the knowing that um, of course because also we work participatorily and so the community is the one that's going to dictate what happens and so I definitely put forward sort of like this skeleton and I knew that the people that I met were going to be able to provide me with those details because for me it didn't make sense to go with this I I had never been to Vietnam it wasn't you know wasn't my place to be like I'm going to go over there and this is what I'm going to do it was more that like okay look at this opportunity that I have but I'll I'll go and I just want to like there's this expression that one of the fishermen taught me in in his English, big up. I just want to big up an organization. So he, whatever we would say like, oh yeah, that could be a good idea. He's like, yes, that would really like, we would be able to big up with that. And I guess that means like empower yourself or speak up. But so um, whatever I did, I I think I went over there with the intention of of bigging up. (laughs) Yeah. So just to like step back a little bit, you've been involved in so many impactful, meaningful, and very thoughtful initiatives over the last many years, using surfing as a tool for social justice and youth empowerment and sustainable development. Can you talk me through how you came to understand surfing as a tool for these really big ways of working in the world? Yeah, it definitely was a process because when I started to engage in this space, I had never you know, I wasn't very familiar with sports for development, like, you know, connecting that link with like an action to then creating like, you know, justice from that. So I originally just sought out to support the, these organizations that were using surfing as this tool. And, you know, when you say a tool for youth empowerment, like empowerment's a word that's just thrown out, you know, quite a lot. And so, but what does that actually mean? And for me, it's relationship building because, not only are you able to supply someone with a surfboard, which is really like a tool to explore this incredible environment. And so what that relationship building does, 
one, you get closer to this natural space. And so I think when you are done talking about like ocean conservation, when you're throwing out these facts to kids or what whatnot who live next to the ocean, it's like now because they've had that relationship with the sea that's like in a playful sort of free way, that unstructured, you know, wild play, there's like a place for that information to land with you. Like it really hits home. But then for me, surfing with the children of fishermen or, or local mothers, it also enabled me to build a relationship with the community members because they would entrust their children in me. I would take them, they would have fun. And so I would come back home, drop the kids off and, you know, alive and then happier than when they left the house. So I think, you know, as a mom, <laughs> you must understand that like that probably builds trust in like an, an individual. And so eventually people would invite me into their homes and share a meal with me, but then also begin to talk about issues that they were facing. And originally I was looking at more social issues, but then it became more and more clear to me that because these were all small scale fishing communities and ocean dependent, you cannot separate, um, you know, the social from the ecological. Mm. So we've been having a lot of cultural conversations around race and racism. And as a white woman of, you know, relative privilege, surfing privilege and otherwise, how did you grapple with the whole white savior industrial complex when you're going into these places and wanting, you know, with a pure heart to, to empower local people to connect and, and allow them to have more opportunity, more accessibility to resources? How did you dance that line between, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, mm-hmm. charity work of the past and transforming that into something that is genuinely collaborative? Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you asked that question because people may have very good intentions, but if you are not aware of that white savior complex or that community members are going to look at you through that lens, whether it's called white savior complex or not, just the fact that you are white and you're coming in with different clothes and different, I mean, people are going to sense that. And so there's an automatic you know, wall. It may be a wall of niceness where people often say, like, oh, the, but the community is so nice. Well, you know, but I think for me, the way I approached it is one, just knowing that that is what's going to go on. So no matter, you know, what sort of front I take, it's going to take time and trust for people to maybe let their guard down with me in a very truthful and a genuine way. But that will only happen if I myself am genuine and and sincere in every single action. So I always think about going into a community. um, It's a huge honor. And it'd be like if someone invited you over to their home and you're not going to walk in and say, you know, like, why do you have your couch there? Or, or, you know, or this food is like, like you're going to be on your your best behavior. No, you're, it's like, it's, it's someone has welcomed you into their home. And it's also in terms of research, um, when researchers go out into the like quote field and, you know, there are community members that are watching them. It'd be like if someone came into your backyard and started poking around your plants, you'd be like, well, what are you doing? But yeah, it's I, full on objectification, <laughs> that yeah, separation. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think I've just tried to be very aware of that and know my place is always as a guest and that you know it's kind of crazy to think that you could just walk into you know a community and say like I've got this idea and we should do this if you've not spent a day like living the life of someone who's there so 
yeah, it's not something that, you know, escapes me when I do my, my work, but I just, I really focus on um, being mindful uh, to, in every action that I do, whether it's, you know, like picking up a spoon or, <laughs> or making a statement, just always, you know, know my place in that way. Mm. Have you spent time maybe through your studies critiquing the idea of quote charity work I'm just interested I feel like um it's not a really mainstream conversation yet and yeah I mean I'm not thinking so much on the individual scale but when we think about big multinational corporations who you know contribute to the decimation of water systems and air quality, and then they funnel a small percentage of their profits maybe to doing so-called charity work. And and that's sort of their guise for, you know, doing good work, doing the right thing, helping to reduce their impacts elsewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm just interested to know as someone who studied these things Mm -hmm. professionally and made a, made a career out of running community projects how how can we reframe the way we think about doing good work in the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really don't like the word charity, but I mean charity has a needs-based approach versus a rights-based approach. So it, what frustrates me is that the word charity actually goes back to a Greek word agape which means love and it was actually tied originally to like early Christians in terms of like, you know, I guess Jesus's preachings of love and whatnot, but it's gotten institutionalized or structured in a way where I think people use it to feel better about themselves, but it's not changing the structure at the all. The systems, right? This, it's, exactly. It's, for me, it looks like um, alleviating immediate needs and maybe important needs like you know providing food for people who are hungry Mm -hmm. but not addressing the systemic reasons why those people are hungry exactly and that's why the charity that exists right now i think overall in the world is needs-based so you're maybe you're giving people a fish but you're not going to teach them how to fish and i think that is something that scares people um, in a sense, because when people gain rights, it's like, well, you know, my system of, of power, that's going to shift maybe. But when we're talking about inclusivity and providing a platform for more voices to be heard, it's strange because I think people somehow get confused with thinking that addition will somehow equal subtraction. And that's not it. You know, we're going to be learning new information. And charity also sort of follows this single narrative of history where we're only including certain memories but you know not everyone's going to remember the same event in the same way and so I have I remember this moment where it really struck me you know this the standard charity was uh, we were working with a community in Mexico and there's other organization was there as well and they had brought it was during Christmas times so they had brought a bunch of teddy bears for like the kids and we were doing a workshop and so the kids had left the workshop and they were going, uh, it was a photography workshop and they were going to meet this other group that was there. They had all these white people with teddy bears that were, you know, held above their heads because the kids were jumping up saying like, like, I want one, I want one. And they were kind of struck, I guess, by like the, the crowd of kids that had come and they were just holding these teddy bears being like, stop, stop, like stand in line. And it, 
oh, it, it made me just nauseous. And I, I thought like, okay, and that, that was just a perfect illustration of, I think, the charity that you're, that you're mentioning where it's, you know, I'm going to give you this teddy bear. And then, you know, I did, give my, I did my good deed versus I'm going to give you tools and not even give, I'm going to share with you because they're not, they're not mine to give you. They're, I'm just going to share you with the, these tools and a technique for you to be able to have the same rights that I have and change the system in that way. So I, we could do a whole conversation. About it. I know <laughs> it's a, it's a complicated conversation and yeah. it does make us uncomfortable because it's a fundamental shift in how we've been taught to think about helping other people reaching out and um and it can present major challenges to our ideas of power and I think specifically of the the legacy of surfing imagery of mostly young white male surfers pushing black and brown children into waves and how that's been glorified as a kind of Mm -hmm. charity in a way, but it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Exactly. And then you have to think, so what does pushing a little kid into a wave, what does that do for that little kid? You know, I think as surfers, like we know how surfing has transformed our lives. And so I think if you push a kid into a wave, you then have the responsibility to also be there as a support system to that kid who is going to find some, you know, strength, not only on the inside, but also on the outside. And so then what, what do you do with that strength? You know, it's like, you have to provide the stepping stones also in front. It's not enough just to push, you know, a kid onto a wave, like, you know, you have to know what you're getting into. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. And I, and I mean, I don't want to paint the picture that you know, charity is, is wrong. And that, you know, especially right now, you know, like we're fundraising to buy food and medicine and, and oxygen right now. And so, you know, and that will be simply purchasing food and giving it to someone, but you know, that is in this emergency, this moment, but I'm dedicated to like changing the health inequalities that do exist, especially with marginalized, you know, small scale fishing communities. So when you do exercise your privilege, like, there's a big responsibility that comes with that um, and stopping it just there is, is just kind of sad and a little, you know, hollow, I guess. Mm, that's really well said. Thank you. So you've shifted your work a little bit. I've just been following your journey since we got to spend a little bit of time in India together. Yeah. Um, you've shifted to working more in small scale fishing communities and you've, mm-hmm. um, introduced some really beautiful programs for skill sharing. Can you talk me through why you chose fishing villages in particular and and how that relates to surfing and what kind of skills you're introducing that are impacting those communities? Sure. So when I first started my nonprofit, we originally partnered, I say we, but it was really just me. I I have partnered with, (laughs) um, I have partnered with uh, three uh, you know, local surfing for youth empowerment organizations. One was in Peru, one was in South Africa, and one was in India, where, you know, we we had visited. Um, but it never occurred to me while I was working there that they were based in small-scale fishing communities. I had just never made that connection until my partner, um, Nico, and I, who uh, we actually met in Lobitos, 
crew, which was the first community that I, I worked with. And it was actually right after working on the film, you and I together, uh, I, I went back to Peru, was invited for this. It was a participatory audiovisual workshop. And so I think from working on the Beyond the Surface film and working with those the kids and, you know, many of these children in uh, Trivandrum, you know, it's, it's constantly under coastal erosion with rising seas and it's just kind of wet and people living in very close quarters and it's, it's, it's a tough place to grow up. Major sanitation issues, mm-hmm. health issues. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and many of these children um, are born without birth certificates. The government kind of just turns a blind eye. And, you know, when Dave Holmesy had put these kids on film, it, for me, it was it was so powerful because I was watching them watch themselves when we were, you know, screening the video. And it was like, they made their mark. They are there recorded in history. And so for me, it was like, oh my God, like the power of, of storytelling and visual storytelling, you know, as a way to even communicate your very existence. And so uh, I, I was invited to this workshop back in the same community I first started in, kind of like a full circle in Lobitos, and it was being facilitated um, by this group, Waves for Development, and uh, the facilitator was this guy named Nicolas, <laughs> and who was using um, audiovisual tools actually to engage more like indigenous communities in Peru um, around telling their own stories, so having tools to do that. And So what does that mean, like using cameras, using video cameras, yes. editing software? Exactly. Yep. The whole, so from like storyboarding to, you know, like retelling of a legend from your community, um, talking about traditional medicine uh, and, you know, a lot of these communities that have been, I guess, victims of colonialism and their, their cultures being wiped out. So uh, he was in the fishing community. Uh, Nicolas was in the fishing community then facilitating this workshop. Um, and so we got to speaking and I was like, wow, well, you know, the kids involved in, in our programs, our surfing programs, like this would be so cool. Because I remember, you know, before even the first GoPro came out, like I had this little Kodak camera and I was, you know, getting hit by surfboards, but like filming the kids. And But then when the GoPro came out, it was so incredible for the kids to film themselves and they took to it so quickly. So I had, I was coming in it from this perspective. So Anyway, Nico and I decided to team up, and so we started under Beyond the Surface this kind of audiovisual workshop series called Coast to Coast. So the idea was we would go kind of visit these different surfing free empowerment programs. I still had not made the connection that all these places were in small-scale fishing communities until we were invited to do a workshop with a group in Indonesia. And after the surfing class, uh, we were like, okay, let's try this, you know, a photography workshop where the kids would go take pictures of their community um, of the ocean and come back and we'd look at the photos all together and then they would write captions beneath the photos. And um, this one girl, she came to us with this photo of a woman, her grandmother, who was frying fish. And then the next photo was a plate with the fried fish next to a bed of rice. And her caption below it was, uh, rice and fish are best friends, but fish doesn't come around as often and rice feels very sad. And wow. It blew my mind. Of course I had been exposed to you know to all the ocean conservation, you know, data and plastic pollution and you know I, I was aware of that as a surfer. But I remember I was reading this caption. I just looked at Nico and I was like, "Oh my god, like we're talking about food security." Like and then I just it was like a flash. I remember like every single instance where 
I had been pushing kids into ways and there had been a fisherman or like, you know, it, it just, it became so clear to me that like, okay, wait, we're already working with small scale fishing communities. And we had already been talking about all these social justice issues, but I had never once made the connection that actually these communities are ocean dependent. The ocean fishing actually serves as like a buffer for them in terms of going deeper into poverty because you know that you can get food. You know that many of the fishermen that we work with refer to the ocean as their bank and they just go out, you know, do a transaction, take their their fish as their money and then come back into shore and they'll they always know that they can rely on the ocean. But now they're facing these incredibly huge, you know, massive challenges and they have the least to do with the problem. <laughs> so that's really when our, our focus became very, very narrow in terms of being very specific with who we were working with. And then that in that way, we were able to even work with partners who, who do have, you know, the authorities to change policy and, and whatnot. But I think for me, it was really a step by step process surfing that led to, you know, using your voice that now you have, you know, built and strengthened. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That, that caption is, that gave me goosebumps. I, it's kind of like the silliest thing, but it was like, made the connection. It made the human connection between the academics of climate change and fish stock depletion and how it affects one girl in her family and her community. Absolutely. And it's just the most childish statement. And you know, there's so much power in it. it. You know, kids get a bad rep for for saying childish things, and I think childish should be a, a positive. <laughs> you know, um, you know, they can really take your breath away with what they're saying. Absolutely, having a toddler, yeah. we get to experience that almost every day. The yeah. the profound questions that they have are, like you said, breathtaking. Minnow asked us the other day, "What is music?" And oh I was like, my- "We had to prove <laughs> that." Like. I felt a real responsibility to come up with an like, <laughs> And he didn't really want to know that, yes, animals can create music and humans can create music. It doesn't, it can be cacophonous. It can be synchronous, but it was, it was, it was, it's just, they, children have a way of re-stimulating our imaginations and our creativity and our sense of play and wonder for the world. Absolutely. That something that we've we've come to say to the kids a lot that we work with is like finding the extraordinary in their ordinary and they're just so good at doing that you know going out and I and I I just have the privilege of like looking at through their photos you know insights of their of their daily lives you know and they're just these photos are just extraordinary I mean um you know how they capture even like the light, you know, coming into their house, because that's something that they notice, you know, through the crack in their ceiling, and they really like it, you know, and if you went in with just like the scientific or, you know, academic approach, you would look at that and be like, oh my god, there's a crack in their ceiling, and of course, like, yes, if it rains, like, that should, you know, be fixed and whatnot, but, you know, you would never know that that kid, you know, really enjoyed the way that the light would would, would fall through the ceiling every afternoon, mm. <laughs> so I just think these nuances are, are very important, and Again, these these memories that deserve to to be told and and be part of history. Mm-hmm. I'd like to read a quote back to you from an interview we did a couple months ago now for the book that I put together. Oh, yeah. She surfed the rise of female surfing, which is a shameless plug. Um, 
So you told me that you wrote, by 2048, it's predicted that there won't be enough fish in the sea to feed the world. Three billion people, that's billion with a B, the population of China, India, and Brazil combined are going to lose a staple source of protein while 500 million people's livelihoods will be eliminated due to fish stock depletion. Um, And I wanted to be really clear when you were talking about the small scale fishermen that were going to their bank and you said that they had the least to do with the problem. I just wanted to be really clear that small scale artisanal fishing is not the issue that we're talking about here. It's not the problem that's compromising global fish stocks. It's really industrial mass fishing that is probably the source of where most of the Western world gets our fish from. Absolutely. So small-scale fishing communities produce 50% of the world's captured seafood. They make up 90% of fishermen, fisherwomen, and most of them live in what I like to call the tropical majority countries. So these are communities that depend directly upon the sea for their livelihoods. And so they are not prone to overfishing because that would be taking food away from their children in the future when they become fishermen or fisherwomen. So, and just, you know, a staggering statistic is that the U.S. imports 90% of the seafood consumed by Americans. And that is not coming from these small-scale fishing communities. That is normally going to be crab or shrimp, and it's going to be imported from places like Vietnam, but that's not coming from the fishermen that, you know, would actually benefit in terms of getting funding from, you know, such a big country for to support their livelihoods, but in a sustainable way. So these communities are often in conflict with the industrial boats. I uh, just got an interview back that was translated from um, an interview that I did with some fishermen in Vietnam, and they spoke about how the industrial boats will just run over their nets. They just either don't see them, but of course, the fishermen say, like, how can they not see us? You know, their boat is so much bigger. You know, they're looking out at the sea. Like, of course, they're going to see us, but it's too much trouble for them to slow down. So they'll just run over in their nets. But then it takes about two weeks for them to either um, mend the net. And that's usually done by, you know, their wife. Or, um, yeah, they don't have the money to buy a new net. In Peru, there's a rule that five miles from the coastline is reserved only for small-scale fishing communities. But the industrial boats have either bribed to fish in that area, and there's a lot of conflicts between um, the fish, the small-scale fishing communities. They're just pleading basically with the law enforcement to actually, you know, <laughs> to to enforce these rules. So, yeah, it's 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 hard when you have these these communities that are on the front lines, the you know, the coastlines of these major issues that we're all talking about, but they often feel sidelined from these big dialogues over the blue economy, as it's called. And they don't see it as <laughs> the blue economy. They just, they see it as, as their, you know, source of food, uh, like a source of co- their own culture. The, um, the ocean, you know, has everything to do with gender roles, um, you know, social safety net. It, it's, 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 there are so many ways that the ocean shapes their life. And, they often have very little say over its future. And like the ocean's future is their future. And ultimately it will be our fate as humans on the planet. Um, And so it's absolutely imperative that they have a seat at 
these decision-making tables. I mean, as of yesterday, that that should have happened. And of course, now we're moving towards aquaculture and, you know, fish farming and whatnot. And I think one of the things that that really surprised me actually in Vietnam is, um, you know, the Vietnamese government, once they saw that the East Sea uh, was um, being depleted of its fish, uh, because there were a lot of fishing communities and a lot of people depending on fish, um, they decided to make it easier for fishermen to become fish farmers and transition into aquaculture. But what they they didn't anticipate was that none of the fishermen gave up their fishing. Um, what the people that were attracted to the aquaculture because it was going to be outside where people had previously worked in like textile factories for like Nike or they didn't want to be inside anymore. So they went out and, and, and um, started doing aquaculture. So in fact, it added more people on the ocean. And while many of the fishermen don't have much conflict or don't really see, they often stay away from the fish farms um, just to, in front of Manta, you know, I, I had access to like stand up paddle boards. So I would stand up paddle over to the fish farm and with um, one of the fishermen who worked at Manta as a sailing instructor and, you know, we'd have lunch with the the guys there. And what always struck me is that, you know, they were kind of like misfits of society who kind of found a family on these fish farms and, you know, they would share about their stories. But well, when we were eating, I, I just assumed that they would have brought their lunch with them to the fish farm, you know, but they would fish on the fish farm, not in the pens, but they had like a hidden fish farm kind of like underneath the little hut with either like an octopus or they would put a little fish from the sea in that one. And, and they would either take their lunch from there or they would just fish off the fish farm. And so it just really, it's telling me that like, this is just a part of, of life, you know? And so when people are blaming you know, like, why don't fishermen just become like tour guides or whatnot? It's like, it's, it's like asking a surfer, like, oh, you know, surfing, imagine surfing is, there are too many surfers out there. Like you need to stop surfing. Like, yeah. Why don't you just surf at a wave pool? It's too crowded. So you should just surf at a wave pool. (laughs) Exactly. I think fishing is the exact, you know, a fisherman or, you know, a woman who's involved in harvesting and post harvesting would have the exact same reaction. It would just be like, absurd. Yeah. Absurd. We often talk about fishermen, have you seen, are there many fisher women in the communities that you work in? Yeah, there's actually a great, uh, there was some great research recently published by this professor, Dr. Sarah Harper, um, and she and her team were actually looking if, if they could calculate how many uh, fisher women uh, were out in the world, um, and specifically small scales, you know, working with communities. Um, and at a minimum, they make up 11% in terms of actually going out and, and capturing fish. But women play such a huge role in post-harvest, a pre in terms of they're the ones that are mending the nets. They are the ones that are slicing up and doing all sort of maybe the gross work, you know, taking out the guts. And, and they're also the ones then cooking and feeding their families. And the, the women that I was lucky enough to interview uh, you know, who are all at the market and whatnot, um, many of them saw that activity of selling fish. That was, that was a job because they were, you know, exchanging money and whatnot, but mending the net, all these other activities that are so vital for fisheries, that was just part of their household chores. So it'd be the same as if they were doing laundry, like no one's going to pay them for that. So mending the net, why should, would they be paid for that either? Which I thought was really interesting. And then what's really curious also about Vietnam is that um, the women are the ones that control the money in the household. So 
they're the ones that are often um, either selling the fish. And so they're the ones that are often just, you know, getting the money back. Uh, but many of them were asking me like, you know, in your country, like who, who has the money like in usually, you know, had to think about it because I guess it kind of depends on families, but I would assume that the men usually have, you know, more power over the purse. And the women were very excited to tell me, no, no, no. In Vietnam, the women have the money. And if our husband wants to go to buy a beer, like he's got to come to us first and ask for that money, <laughs> which I thought was just, wow, that's, that's amazing. But, um, you know, to be fair, like, you know, often women are uh, play an invisible role in fisheries, and so um, and and many of like these poverty alleviating strategies that come out of governments or um, you know the UN, uh, they don't often focus on women. But if women, for the women in Vietnam who are the ones in charge of the you know a, a families um you know as a household economic unit, they should be the ones that are included. Like they should be going to the meetings. It doesn't make sense for the you know all the men to go if they're mm. not the ones that are making those decisions. So that was a really interesting insight. Mm, it sure is. Um, so we started this podcast, Watershed Chats, as a way to highlight people like yourself who are in service of solutions. We've talked a bit about the myriad problems socially, ecologically, um, economically. How can how can we join you in empowering small-scale fishing communities, surfing communities in a systemic way? Yeah. Well, I think one of the first things that I, I sometimes um, share with people is like, okay, the next time that you go out and eat a fish taco or, um, you know, order, um, you know, some sort of seafood, uh, like ask, just ask the waiter where, uh, where that fish came from or like what kind of fish it is. So just kind of to have this curiosity towards it, because it is important. You're putting it into your body. Like you should maybe know where it came from. Often I think perhaps the restaurant might not even know themselves. Maybe they know where it was sourced. Um, but so to have that sort of curiosity as well towards what you're eating, but if there is anyone who would like to support what we're doing, um, we are based in the fishing community of Lobitos, Peru. And so we do welcome people to come down and work with us and share a skill um, that they have with, with the community that we work with. And then in terms of just, you know, supporting uh, us at the moment, we are raising funding for um, addressing, you know, the COVID and the impacts there that are having on fishing communities, because many of the fishermen are not able, if they're sick, they're not able to go out and, you know, bring food back or bring funding back. So we do have a donation link going on, but it's so, it, I think what is really, really inspiring right now is to see people who are so actively asking for justice. Um, and I always remember this quote by um, Cornell West, Professor Cornell West, about that justice is what love looks like in public. And I think it's kind of stepping into that space where you you are curious and why why is that you know where does that 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 come from um and it's not the love as like uh um um James Baldwin says it's not that you know of being made happy uh love or that he calls an infantile American sense of being made happy it's it's that daring and universal like sense of growth and so you know I would I would think 
to ask people to find out what you really love and knowing that love is also attached to this justice and and going out and and doing doing something with that that you have but something that where you can see yourself because sometimes sometimes we look at the world and we we're, we zoom out so far that we can't see where we fit into that picture and all these big global challenges but um i think if you can pinpoint where you fit on on the map uh you know if it's a, if you're a surfer if that's what you love to do if you're an artist if you are a musician like if you can find yourself on the map then if you can figure out how to use that for justice something that you love it's just the most powerful thing in the world and so you know we're all working for the same thing which is justice you know hmm emmy can you tell me about any firsthand experiences with the impacts of climate change within the communities you've been working in? We did actually, um, in terms of looking at climate change, uh, one of the places that we were lucky enough to work in uh, was an island in Indonesia called Mortai, and they're experiencing rising um, sea levels, you know, at an exponential rate. And in the community that we worked in um, and lived in, uh, they're already, I think, within the last two previous years before we had gotten there, about 15 houses have just fallen into the sea. And uh, so we were very curious to understand, like, um, you know, why people thought that was happening. And so we made a a short video with one of the the local moms. Uh, She, you know, did from the storyboard, she wrote it out and whatnot. And it was so fun to make it with her and, you know, record her voice. And, and, uh, and so when I asked her, you know, well, why do you think that the sea is rising? Uh, She was like, you know, how could I know? But I have a theory that either it's because we are putting too much plastic into the ocean and so it's overflowing or um you know that that island a uh, couple uh, miles away is dumping too much water into the ocean and so you know we've had some animosity towards them over the years and so perhaps they could be you know doing that and so it was it was i guess i tell those stories because again communities that are living on the front lines the consequences of carbon emissions and a community that's lost 15 houses, like families' homes into the ocean. And they just got a road, I think, six months before we had gotten there. So like no one had a car, you know, they were burning on, you know, wood fire stoves. But it was so infuriating to know that she had not a way to address this and not even the access to the information as to why this was happening. And do you feel like that's the crux of your work now? Yes, definitely. It's been like like a three step process. Usually, we're only in a community um, that we're like we go to visit. Maybe for we try and stay a month, but um, sometimes just funding wise, we're only able to do it for about two weeks. Um, which is why you know staying in Vietnam was was such a luxury of having that scholarship. But we try and do like surfing workshops at the get go because that like you know. Um, everybody's energy is moving, that trust is built, and then you've got this voice. Okay, so how are you going to use that voice? Let's look at the community strengths because we're not just going to look at the negatives. Like, let's see what, like, what are the great qualities that your community has? And so we look at, you know, strengths. We look at the changes that communities are experiencing, and then we look at the challenges. And then any of those challenges have they resulted in any conflicts? 
And then we've added mindfulness in there at the end, because I think once people do have this call for justice, this call for action, I think doing so mindfully um, and you know, nonviolently is is so critical because um, a lot of these communities that we work with, violence, uh, you know, is is a very um, real thing, especially for girls. And so, um, to address that with, you know, some inner strength and peace, I think is is a is a is a big deal and a, and a skill to have. So it's this kind of three these three tools that we use: the surfing, audiovisual tools, and then throwing mindfulness in there at the end, just to make it holistic. That seems like a, a powerful model for any community anywhere in the world. I feel like, <laughs> have you thought about instituting someone <laughs> in Southern California? Like they'd be really useful. <laughs> I actually, you know, because the lockdowns and border closures, this is the most time I've actually spent in California for quite a while. And, um, and so, and I'm actually, I'm very glad to be here during this time, um, because I mean, I do wish that I was I was with my partner and back in the community in Peru, so I could help there. But um, in the, in terms of everybody coming, seemingly coming to this like racial consciousness, um, it's been incredible to sort of see what I've been doing in kind of these far remote places. But seeing sort of mirrors with what's happening in these kind of big cities in the U.S. That I and it's also humbling too because I've looked at these issues in other places and I'm usually the only one that looks like me like I'm usually the only white person and so I haven't really been forced to examine my own implicit biases in a sense um because I have been out of this structure I guess you could say so buying the book about (laughs) how to be an anti-racist and stuff it's been an interesting time to be here This episode of Watershed Chats is presented by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to protect our home planet. Thanks to our sound engineer and musician, Shannon Sol Carroll, and artist-in-residence, Chris Miyashiro. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my co-host, Dave Rastovich, thanks for listening with us. Learn more at waterpeoplepodcast.com. <laughs>